what I got out of this was just this overwhelming sense of intimacy. This is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today, we've got shuffling papers in the background somewhere, somebody. But we've got Tracy. Good morning. And we've got Eric. Good morning. We've got Karen. Hello. I'm glad somebody's shuffling papers because that means you wrote notes. I hope. <laughs> or you're doing a last minute. Welcome. You're at, you're in a you're in a last minute frenzy. <laughs> to go, what was I supposed to read this week? <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, you know, I just think it's kind of funny. It, you know, the my my oldest graduated from college last night, which high school. You, no, he graduated college last night. He oh. graduates college this coming or high school this coming Thursday. Oh, nice. So yeah, you heard that right. He graduated college before high school, but that's because they, he was in a dual. What do you call that? Dual uh, enrollment. Dual yep. enrollment. Yeah. See, I'm not smart enough for that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Dual enrollment. So he actually graduated. Uh, he actually graduated college last night and will graduate high school next week. So that's that's just kind of been a little, I don't know, nice. funny in my head. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I have a college graduate in my house. Well, I guess my wife and I technically are, too, but, you know. It's it's cooler to say your kid is a college graduate. It's weirder when it's your kid. It is weird. It is very weird. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was a weird graduation too because it was all online. Even the students get didn't get to go. The whole thing was a YouTube was a YouTube uh, you know live thing, and they had they had canned applause. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was it was pretty cringy. that's funny it was it was but you know so we sat around and we just it was so weird just sitting in our living room watching tv as uh as my kid graduates and the whole time he's just looking completely bored with the whole process so (laughs) one of my graduations once you what i said i skipped uh my grad school graduation (laughs) <laughs> I, I like literally it's like well that would mean staying one more weekend i was like nope i'm out of here <laughs> well i skipped my college graduation you know i just got an associate's degree but uh i kind of took the four year or at least three years i don't remember you know it's supposed to be a two-year degree and i towards the end i think i started realizing that that degree was going to be kind of useless for me and and i wasn't really going to use it but uh so i kind of blew it off thinking i had one or two more classes to take and then all of a sudden, I decided, you know what, I should at least try to get the thing. And so I got my college transcripts to see how much I had left to take. And it turned out I'd had enough credits all along. So <laughs> so I, I put in my application, said, mail it to me. I'm good. Anyway, that's, that's, where, that's where we're sitting here is with uh, brains oozing out, out the ears, I guess. Good for him. Good for you. Yep, yep. yep. That's awesome. That is yeah, good. It, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure he gets it from me. <laughs> well, I know where my kids get their academic abilities from, and it's it's from it's from their mom. It's Mother's Day coming up here as we were getting ready to record it. Yeah. So shout out to all the mothers there. If uh, well, of course, by the time you hear this, Mother's Day will be passed. Hope you had a good one. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hi, mom. You'll hear this in two weeks. Yeah, right. That's the people who are just our regular subscribers and maybe one or two more. I was very startled this week to find out it was Mother's Day. So I said to my mom, did you know it's Mother's Day? She goes, what? That's, right. That's the, that's the level of awareness we have going on over here. Somebody at work said something about blah, 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 Mother's Day. And I was like, wait, no, surely that's far off in the distance because that doesn't happen until May. Uh, we're in May. Nuts. Yep. Somehow we're in May. Mm -hmm. The year is almost half over already. I know. That's what's really crazy, how the time is just going and going. Oh, well, speaking of time going and going, how about we get into our reading today? Because I know my mom's listening to this and she's like, I wish they would just get on with it. Currently annoyed. <laughs> Hi, Matt's mom. We're just chatting. Yeah. <laughs> so this week we get into a bit of a different book. We are going to study the Song of Solomon. Um, now, chronologically speaking, we've been we've seen Solomon crowned. We've seen him build the temple. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes and some real, uh, 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 how did we put it, the uh, deeply entrenched in reality. There you go. Mm -hmm. You're taking my, coining my phrase. It's a good phrase, and I like it much better than than my my pessimistic look at it in the past. And I, you, you have sold me. I like that book so much better now. So this week now, we're talking about a really different type of book in the Song of Solomon, where it's literally, uh, it's a love poem. Uh, and, and I'm not generally <laughs> the type to go looking for, for love poems to read. You know, I'm not out there looking for, uh, what is it? I don't know, is Emily Dickinson, was she a poet? Uh, yeah, but she was not what she, yeah, she was yeah. a bit more of a downer. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I'm not I'm not usually looking for that sort of thing. And so, you know, when I'm when I was reading this at first, I'm looking I'm trying I'm trying to attack it, you know, and I'm I'm looking at it and I'm looking for all the little deep nuggets in it. And you can find the deep nuggets as you're reading for sure, but I started realizing that it's really better if you just sort of let it wash over you. You don't try to get too deep into the allegories that Solomon is is putting down, assuming it's Solomon who's writing this because there is some uh, discrepancy on that as well but um yeah we have some we have some funny allegories i'm sure we'll we'll laugh about things here like sheep and teeth and necks like love towers sure that's what i looked at it as all this week mm -hmm. lovey mm -hmm. lovey banter <laughs> yeah well, banter. okay lovey banter or not if anyone ever tells me that my nose looks like the tower of lebanon i <laughs> i don't <laughs> know how long that relationship is gonna i let's not get personal like i'm aware of that but just be nice <laughs> yeah the metaphors here would be easy to get lost in given our yeah you know <laughs> we're at I did roughly three thousand ish years later i mean karen's got the timeline bible but uh some things are probably lost in uh, lost over the years my grandfather used to teach, um, he was a Bible teacher, and he also taught, uh, he taught in, in, um, in various colleges and, and was a missionary, and he said one of the difficult things in studying the Bible, and this is a good example of it right here in the Song of Solomon, is the foreign idiom. He mm -hmm. says it's a very difficult thing to, to understand and to teach. 
Um, because in English, and this is one of the ones that he would, he brought to my mind, and I was like, wow, you're right. That makes no sense. He said, okay, take, for example, this phrase. First, you go to a tree and you cut it down. Then you cut it up. Mm. Literally, <laughs> if you're learning English and you hear that phrase, you're like, okay, so you cut it down and then you <laughs> cut it back up like playing the tape backwards i don't understand <laughs> and you're like oh no 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 that's not what that means at all you, you actually cut it down and then it stays down and then you cut it into small pieces like well you didn't say that it's like <laughs> well, yeah but that's what it means I'm like god what you say what you mean well it that's an idiom and literature is full of it and other languages are full of these things and if we if we look to take meaning, can you just imagine that in another culture? If we wrote a passage of, of spiritual um, spiritual wisdom and we included, you cut a tree down and then you cut it up and then they took it literally, hmm. cut it back. You'd be like, no, 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 no. That's not no. That's not where we were going with that. So it's it's a thing to be a little bit careful of. Another example that is a biblical one is that when God is patient in Deuteronomy and Genesis and so on like this. The Hebrew, the Hebrew idiom is he has a long nose. Mm. God has a very long nose because that was their idiom for that, that somehow anger would, would have to travel up your nose or down your nose. I don't really understand how it is, but basically that it would take a long time to, to happen if you had a long nose, again, not a literal nose at all. It's an idiom, right? And and so our Bibles don't translate it, um, you know, and God is, they, they, our Bibles do translate it as, and God is very patient, instead of, and God had a long nose. Because otherwise you'd be like, what? They don't get it. So we're, we're about to wade into a lot of stuff here that, as Matt said, if we're trying to take it phrase for phrase, it, it, wow, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the reason a lot of times people try to take it phrase for phrase is because of the understanding that uh, Jews and Christians both have taken this as an allegory for for God's love for his people, for the church. Christians, of course, specifically Christ's love for the church. But if you if you try to break it down too hard, even even just within that context, I think you lose a lot of it uh, because there's there's a lot of emotional uh, quotient here. So it's it's good it's good to just kind of let it wash over you as you read it, and then maybe go back and 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 look at it and look in for for deeper context. Uh, so I, you know it'll be interesting to see how we end up taking this as we go, because as I was you know studying this week, I found myself kind of getting i won't say bogged down but i definitely was losing i was losing the emotional side of it when i kept looking into it and trying to see see the allegory instead of just seeing that surface story that's being told and really you know if you just if you just let it wash over you this is a it, it's a very literal look at physical attraction um sexual attraction sexual magnetism that kind of thing and it, uh, it on that it seems like a kind of an odd thing to put into the Bible to have that sort of of a relationship being laid out like this. Yeah. What did you, you guys the, think about that? 
You make a good point, Matt. I think, but I think that that is that is a relatively recent, and by that I mean hundreds of years, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. idea to divorce the um, the the physicality of our of how we are created from the fact that we are created. Maybe we can thank our Puritan uh, forefathers and mothers for some of this, or some of the um, some of the dualism that, that the Greeks introduced, the idea that your soul is pure, but your body is bad, or some of the early Christian church, the asceticism, you know, it's like, uh, don't touch, don't hold, don't, uh, don't enjoy, because all of those things are bad. Uh, that's not the Jewish way. You know, I mean, they think about when we flash back and we think about reading um, so many times in, in David's writing. And even as we look back in Moses's writing way back, the word joy, how many times that shows up? I mean, joy is supposed to be in worship. Joy and and expression of these things are part of what we're expected. And the idea that God made man and woman and he made created sexuality and he created these things to be in this context that it's to us we're like oh my how could that possibly be in there and maybe that's maybe the fact that we're shocked is the reason we ought to actually pay attention to it because we shouldn't be uh, I've got a book, uh, because for our listeners who don't know, I actually was uh, an English teacher before. That's what I was going to do as a career. We won't get into that, but I, I'm not. <laughs> mm. But I have a few books left over. And one that I saved is it's a it's a textbook called Words of Delight, uh, a literary introduction to the Bible by author Leland Riken. And it has a big section in here on the Song of Solomon. And he makes it a point to say, this is Maybe we're trying too hard to make this something that it isn't. And to Matt's point, it, if, we, if we let it be what it kind of wants to be, which is just two people, more or less, who are just crazy about each other, and they're just throwing out all the metaphors that they can think, the best things that they can think of, then it's like, oh, okay, wow, that's really something. But if we try to get super allegorical about everything, about every section— we end up very confused. We we end up with wet, sloppy kisses from God, and we're like, oh, I don't know, that's kind of weird. But if we look at it and say, oh, it's it's a pastoral poem, which is an idealized poem. It's like where everything is just sunshine and rainbows and that kind of thing. Then, then it makes more sense. The, the main thing that I, and I did the same thing as you, Matt, I read it, I read it a couple of times, but the time that I got the most out of it was when I read it in one sweep, almost skimming, right? Not mm-hmm. pausing to dig, not stopping to analyze, but reading it more like a wave of thought and feeling than the details of specific sentences. And that was the way that I got the most out of it. And the thing that I got loud and clear was intimacy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. one of the things that has always been strange about the Bible to me is how God uses the same version of the word know when he's talking about knowing us, 
that is used when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Right. Right. right? So I do not in any way feel sexual towards God. So that has always made me a little bit uncomfortable. But what if what that is instead is a deep, detailed, intimate knowing of the person? Now, between humans, where male and female, they were created, right? In God's image, we were created male and female. We come together in a different way. <clears throat> and that's certainly included here. But what I got out of this was just this overwhelming sense of intimacy. And I think that in modern society, we are missing that sometimes. It's It, it either is not ever or gets set aside as part of our love. So like one of the, so I am single, horribly, horribly single. Can't even get a date. It's really annoying. And one of the things that I miss the most is watching a man's arm and shoulder flex when he reaches for something. You see what I'm getting at? Like mm -hmm. the, just like the little intimate details of being close to someone and the things that make them them and that make you you and the way those fit together. And that is, I think, a foundation of love that gets lost in modern day society because we want to go straight for the finish line, straight mm -hmm. for the quick response, straight to the yes, and we forget that it's all made up of little details. You know, and I was, I kind of started this off by, you know, saying it was kind of banter back and forth, but I did the same thing. I had to read it a couple of times because at first, you know, we've done so much in-depth study and we wanted to to pick apart the little pieces and find how they kind of fit into this puzzle and and the pearls of wisdom we're going to get out of here. But what, what I kind of was going back to and what kind of hit me just when I was pondering it so much is that we look at at um, Solomon as being the wisest person. He prayed for wisdom. But what about emotional wisdom? Mm -hmm. You know, and I looked at this and I was thinking when I started, we started this conversation, I said, you know, it was like loving banter back and forth, which, you know, he when you look at it, how many wives did we say he had? 800, 700? It's too many. Yeah, yeah too many. <laughs> but apparently he was good at it. <laughs> you got a lot of repetition you know it, it's like so and i think sometimes we miss that we we always look at the intellectual wisdom but you know there's also emotional wisdom and and intimacy and you know um it's kind of out there where people said you know you have kind of like maybe how about how do i say this um the way that you uh, interact with women, you know, and the way you talk to them and the way you were courting your wife. And, you know, I don't think I'd say some of this stuff to my wife, but, you know, after 30 years, you do. You have a little bit of a, like, game, I guess, you know, to put it out there like the kids would say. What You know, you have a little bit of game with the women, and this is kind of it, this banter. And it's, and you can kind of see it, but I just went back and I was thinking of it as an overall person you know, and this kind of shows us that not only was he intellectually smart, 
and could and could run a country and could make these political and decisions for a country, but also he was an emotional human that had a lot of wives and this was how he got them. That was a really good point. One of the things that I kind of missed the first time I read through it is the things that we're reading are that we have read more or less until this point, with the exception of um, some of the Psalms, are their narrative. Like there's a, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. Yeah, there's a story, you know? David is a, is a, he's going on a mission to bring things to his brothers. He finds out that there is a giant challenging Israel. He goes and challenges the giant. He kills the giant. We have a story. We get into Song of Solomon, and we, I mean, if we're looking for that, we're, we're pretty lost. Because it's just a lot of colorful things going on here. And to make it worse, it's laid out more or less in, in a chiastic structure, which is a... Um, which is a Hebrew structure of literature that's it's uh, it means a crossing where you kind of have a beginning, then you have the middle, then you have the end, but the end reflects the beginning. So it's kind of like the beginning, the end, the beginning. The book of Revelation is laid out that way. And um, this is laid out that way. So if we're looking for a, a narrative, like we see, like we think of in our movies, like, oh, boy meets girl. Oh, challenge. Boy meet, tries to win over girl. You know, complications happen. Ah, oh, finally, in the end, boy gets girl. The end, credits roll. That's not how this one is. It doesn't lay out that way. And so if we're looking for that narrative, it's, we'll get lost. But isn't that how love is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah we want no, it to be a straight line no. from here to there. And it's just... Yeah. It, that there is. is no beginning and there is no end, really. Um, I had a patient this week, and he was an, an older gentleman. He was in his 90s, and he had recently lost his wife. And that's what brought me back to this when I was reading it and how it was, like like I said, like loving banter back and forth, is he said, you know what? She was the love of my life. I, and I love her the same, even though she's not here. He goes, I talk to my children about her like she's here. And he goes, that love grew for, I, I think he said, 70-some years. And I was looking at that, and just like you were saying, Eric, there is no, there's a beginning, and there's this whole middle in between, but I don't think there's an end. And maybe that's where God was pointing us that, you know, that intimacy that Karen was talking about, if worked on and nurtured properly, there is no end. Yeah, and it's not a straight, it's, it's, it's a lot like life in that we, we get started and we think, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but um, get started and think, okay, I know where I'm going. I know how I get there. I know how this ends. And we get in the middle of it. And then it's a little bit like the finish line turned into more of a mirage. We're like, wait a minute. It's just, uh, where am I here exactly? And this, I think to your point, Tracy, that we get, we get in the middle of this and we're just not super sure where it all goes. I mean, some good things happen you know, in the journey, but the, the, the end isn't the finish line. Like Karen has said, it's just like, we have too, too much in our society. And I think now with our microwave mentality, we're going to pop it in, hit the button 30 seconds later, ding. And life is le less like microwave popcorn than we expect it to be. Well, 
you know, we're we're in a first world country. I mean, this week still maybe, and everything that we do, and we were kind of talking about this week the other week. Everything we do is linear. Like the point is at the end. And like what 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 was the the drive to what was the place? Hana. Hana. And it and then like it turns out like the little tiny town with nothing in it in Hawaii at the end of the drive, that's not the point. Right. The point is, oh my goodness, did you see that drive, right? Yeah. And yeah. so so it it just becomes like it turns out that the journey is the destination. It turns out it is the point. Yes. And and I would I would say that relationships are much the same way. And the more intimate the relationship, the more like that it is. Yes. Like if I take a workplace relationship, I don't have personal intimacy with that person. I interact with them on work projects. The things that we talk about, the ways that we interact go from here to there. And if they don't go from here to there, it's weird. And I get frustrated because I'm trying to do work, right? But the closer I get to someone, the, the if I'm actually a friend of theirs, if I'm close friend of theirs, if I'm intimately involved with them, as in a like if they're a lover or whatever, then it becomes there's more and more detail. And the journey becomes more and more the point of the whole thing. Yes, 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 yes. That's so, so true. I've got a friend of mine here in town. We get together once in a while, not regularly, because life is like not that regular. And uh, we'll get together and hang out. And someone, you know, maybe they'll ask, well, what did you, what did you do? I'm like, well, we hung out. Like, that's it. Like, we we didn't get anything done. We didn't solve anything, really. We didn't um, accomplish or do. We, we were just, we were there. And we hung out. And that was the point. And that in and of itself had value. And to, it was, it's the opposite of what Karen's talking about in work. Because if you were employing somebody, you know, it's like, okay, I need you to move the widgets from this box to that box or these numbers from this column to that column. We need to get this done. It's task-oriented. There's a finish line. But relationals and relationally in relationships and between um, a man and a woman, if our objective is simply between here and there, we miss the, the whole, well, we miss the journey. We think we've, you know, accomplished something. We, we, we'll come back to the, to the uh, new freedom to love, but I saw Karen's hand. Well, and along those same lines, a couple of weeks ago, I I remember as we were talking about something that had to do with relationships, I remembered this this thing like at the end of at the end of Revelation, where it kind of sums up everything that's happened, and you know the world has gone through its whatever it's going through, and then Jesus comes back, and it ends by summarizing and saying, "And so shall we ever be with the Lord." Yep. And there it is with. That's the point. The whole point is to be with and near and close. And it doesn't mean you're accomplishing great things. You just get to be close to them. Yeah. Well, should we get into some of this imagery then that we that we see in here? And we'll try to dig a little bit. I don't want to, you know, we can, I don't know. We can dig in pretty good. We, and, we should at least look at some of these because yeah. if, if our readers haven't read it or if you have, it's, there's some, there's some neat stuff. And 
before we get going on it, before we even read Song of Solomon um, offline, before we were re- recording, this is even last week when we knew this was the reading, we were all laughing and joking with each other. It's like, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna try to use these lines on a maybe on somebody that we know. No, no, it doesn't work that way. These are not literal lines. One of my favorites is uh, the the comparison of her to a. Uh, I got two to Pharaoh's chariots and her horses. Not many women I know would be struck in an amazing good way. I'm like, ah, oh, man, you remind me of a horse. <laughs> Just I can think of so many other better lines, but you know we we have to put ourselves back in. And again, it goes to what everybody has said so far is if we go for the feeling of what it is. And in the, in the textbook that I was looking at, he said, look, we, we need to look at these things both from a, in, an emotional point of view and a qualitative point of view. In Solomon's day, Pharaoh's chariot horses were the bomb. Yep, They were Formula One Ferraris. I mean, <laughs> there was nothing better, faster, hotter, Period. There was nothing. There was the best of the best of the best. They were revered. At, sorry? They were revered. Yeah. Around the world. Yeah. And when you said, man, you're like one of Pharaoh's horses, that's kind of like the modern equivalent of saying, you are like the, the red hot, fastest roar of a, a vehicle I could imagine. Well, that's a little bit different. It's like, man, you rumble like a Ferrari. <laughs> is 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 if if a person knows who's speaking and they're into cars, that's like well, that's the, that's the peak, that's the summit. It doesn't get better than that. I personally love carbs, <laughs> and so and so when the one went out like, your belly is a heap of wheat. I'm like, oh, delicious, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so like emotionally, so if I think of it visually. And this is the thing that was it was really epiphany to me. If you think visually, as we're reading through these metaphors, man, are we messed up. We're like, wait, what? Your yep. teeth are sheep? What? Freshly shorn, think- just out of the river, not one is missing. <clears throat> right. Furry, and they, they smell bad. <laughs> right, but if we think qualitatively or emotionally where they were, what that meant, Okay, we get a we get a totally different thing we walk away from. And there's a oh man, there are so many if we use the word word picture, I think we end up in some weird places, but um <laughs> we should just maybe say imagery or emotion. Yeah, let's look at some of these because there's some neat stuff. Well, yeah. can I can I read you guys something interesting? Yeah. So I've got this parallel Bible. It's got four versions next to each other. Two are translations and two are paraphrases. So using the example that Eric just gave about the horses, right? About um, So I'll start with New King James. And this is in chapter 1, verse 9. Um, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Okay, so that's the New King James. Then NIV, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Then we've got New Living Translation. You are as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. Okay, that's a different picture. And then we've got the message. You remind me of Pharaoh's well-groomed and satiny mares. 
Mm. Okay, so when I and I and I typically read NIV simply because it's easy. It's the first column in my four columns. And so that's just where my eyes go because I'm used to starting at the left. And so when I read, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses, I thought to myself, I bet there weren't too many mares among Pharaoh's chariot horses because they don't have the <coughs> cojones to charge into battle the way you want a war horse to do. You want you want a creature who, yes, outside of that setting, they might struggle with antagonism and anger and just randomly attack each other because that's what stallions do. But when it comes to a war horse, you typically want it male. So to me, there was an immediate contrast of femininity standing out from the crowd. That's just the way I read it. Just kind of interesting. But those are that's an example of four different sets of scholars view and interpretation of the exact same words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of this week's, you know, um, offline conversations between us, I, I'm not sure cojones is going to make it to the, the, um, I said it in a different language. That makes it fine. <laughs> it, it might have a beep, but it could end up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> we'll, see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. <laughs> you know, to, to the point, to Karen's point is, is that the Song of Solomon doesn't, doesn't steer away from there is a male and there is a female and they are different. And they have desire for each other. And this is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we look back to Genesis 2 and when the world was created, you know, perfectly, that was part part of creation was that this is what it was supposed to be now has it gone terribly wrong yes like every good gift that we get we find a way to use it wrong and you know to our detriment and that of others but this is a celebration of um you can't read the song of solomon and pull the words or the thought of desire away you you end up with nothing but a confusing jumble of nonsense. It's only through the lens of desire, and I'm going to say holy desire, the, the desire that we're created with before the fall, that we can kind of get a glimpse of of this this um, happiness, this excitement, this um, uh, you know, Tracy's called it banter, these things back and forth. Now, whether they were written by Solomon or they were written for Solomon and he, you know, he commissioned this, I don't know. But as it goes back and forth, you can't help but, you know, she's looking for her for her lover and and she can't wait for his return. And the first time I read this literally is like, well, man, they've got some pretty bad night watchmen in town. I mean, they're just they're rude to her and beat her up. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Well, when you look at it as a metaphor, we're like, oh, I was looking for you. And just like everywhere where you weren't, I just felt like I just felt like I was just getting beat up because the only thing I want is you. It's desire, you know, and if we if we try to read it without that, it just makes no sense. Mm-hmm. One of the things that it said several times that I liked was it said, um, 
do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, right? So she, this was typically what she would say. She would go through a kind of an explanation of this, that, and the other, and how she felt about him in these various ways. And then she would say, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Like this is supposed to be part of our interactions. It's supposed to be. And if it, if that isn't there, if you have succumbed to some kind of Puritan sanitization of how men and women are supposed to interact in this type of relationship, you're kind of missing some of the gold. Like there's this whole element available to these two that are in this kind of private club for two type of thing that isn't available to the huddled masses over there. Like you share things. And, and she says over and over, she'll go into a detailed description of what she likes about him. And then she'll say, do not awaken love until it so desires. This is supposed to be part of it. Yes, it's said three times and it's sprinkled through. It's in two, seven, three, five, and eight and four. And that's the only thing that I noticed that is said, like literally repeated over and over. Like Karen said, this is, there's a lot in there. I mean, I'm in the ESV uh, version and it says that you not. St- I'll read seven, uh, 2.7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It's, there's a lot in there. In, in the book that I was reading, it said, look, when you think of a, a gazelle or a doe of the field, compare that to a war horse stallion. Which one is, which one is meek? Which one is timid and, and um, not aggressive? You don't get much less aggressive than a gazelle or a doe of the field. So it's kind of like, let it be. Let it be gentle. Let it be feminine. Is there Now, this is, this is a point worth making. Not stir up love, uh, not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It, it's flat out saying, like we read it in Ecclesiastes, there's a time. There's a time for this and there's a time not for this. And we have the puritanical side of us, to, to use a metaphor, has focused on the wait and do not part. And we have largely not emphasized that there is a time. You know, Ecclesiastes, there is a time, there is a place. And to Karen's point, if you're missing that, you're actually missing you know, it's like a really core part of what this is supposed to be. You know, it reminds me of a lot of the movies and stuff we would watch as kids where the kind of nerdy guy at school would be just head over heels for the popular girl in school. And he would be trying so hard to get that popular girl. And then once he would finally get close enough to her, he'd realize she's kind of terrible. And then over here on the side is some, somebody else who's been pining for him all along and they end up with this amazing relationship, trying to force, trying to force a relationship is a terrible idea. You, yeah. you, and that's something I've always tried to tell my kids as they're growing up, you know, especially my oldest is, is, you know, don't, don't try to jump into a boyfriend, girlfriend thing. Be friends. If you yeah, can be 100%. friends, then that can maybe grow into something else. But, but don't worry so much about having a girlfriend or whatever. Let it grow. Just let it grow naturally. And, and it's going to work out better. You know, I think it's, it's that exactly what we're saying too. There's, there's a time for everything. And I think it's also, I kind of looked at it as, as a little bit of a warning. It's like, because don't take, 
don't take it for granted. And love is a very serious thing. There's, you know, I think, you know, you look at it, there's responsibilities, there's accountabilities. It's just something that should not be taken taken for granted or taken lightly is the way I kind of looked at it, especially to as many times as we saw this kind of warning. You know, and I think that could be said, too, with your relationship with God. It's like, you know, it's there's there's serious implications there. So be ready for it. Be walk into it knowing that it's serious. Yeah, and and that's kind of what I was getting at with the the whole intimacy thing is that like there is no way to have true intimacy with someone without you being known. And I think there's a little bit of an urge in modern society to where like, well, I want to know about you. I mean, as far as I'm interested right in this moment, but I really don't want to be known. Like I'm going to hang back here and I'm going to stay a little bit safe because I'm because up close and personal, like I really, maybe I'm not that eye catching. It's an insecurity and, thing. And I think I, I want to just say, don't miss that to our listeners, because I think what Karen just said is a foundational key to relationships and either it's foundational to success or failure. And that is self revelation. And when we are too insecure or ashamed or have a have a distorted view of ourselves we we cannot be honest with other people and as a result we cannot have the depth of relationship that we should have and it is not easy just for the record saying that's not an easy thing to to really have self revelation it's just not easy yeah Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that I like about this book is that both she and he, like this is this is the way that love works. Like they are hyper aware of both each other and how they feel about each other, and that is where their focus lies. They are neither one of them is very self conscious at all. They're just eager to be close. And if you can approach a relationship with another person or with God that way, you know, the perk to a relationship with God is that we're guaranteed that if somebody's wrong, it's us. You know, that's that's kind of nice. With another human, you don't have that guarantee. You know, maybe maybe I'm wrong today. Maybe you're wrong tomorrow. You know, that's that just kind of that stuff comes and goes. And you have to be willing to negotiate that without keeping score or you know like holding bitterness and things like that but just that willingness to just show up focus on the other person be yourself assume that you're valuable to them as they are to you there's a lot of confidence that can be gained from being loved but it is a tremendously vulnerable experience whether we're talking about another human or God. And and one of the things that I think modern Christians miss is that God actually knows us this way all the time. Like we can keep him at a distance. The only difference is we don't know him. He knows us this way all the time, which is where the analogy becomes true that is used throughout the Bible with God knowing us the way Adam knew Eve and it resulted in her conceiving a son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yes, yep. 
and that's Karen's not just throwing that out. That is that is um, literally a thing that shows up over and over. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just skip to Deuteronomy uh, ten twenty because this is a thing that is important not to miss. In Deuteronomy ten twenty, it says, "You shall fear the okay." There's all kinds of to. Just see if you can recognize this phrase. This is from Deuteronomy 10. Uh, Fear the Lord your God and walk in his ways to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Jesus quotes this, more or less, right? And then just a little bit later, this is Moses in, in Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. Oh, we got taught the fear of God, right? That part, we, we totally leaned into that in our past. But it keeps going. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. To Karen's point, he's already doing this. And this this phrase, hold fast, is exactly the same one that shows up in Genesis 2, 24, where, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God is asking us to have that kind of emotional, relational intimacy with him. And this is repeated throughout the Bible. And if we are used to or or um, expect a level of relationship without intimacy, we're really not getting the real deal. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or if you, or if you sit back and wait for the other person to be intimate with you, but you don't extend yourself, like that's, that's pretty tough. So if you think about God's end of the relationship with us, it's really not, he's not winning a great prize. You know, we're pretty messed up. And it, and it, as I was thinking about this this week, reading through this, it made me think of the book of Hosea, <clears throat> where God tells his prophet to go and marry a prostitute to demonstrate how proper love acts in the face of a spouse's misbehavior. And so Hosea, as a public figure in his society, is told to go and marry this woman who is, is a prostitute, bring her out of prostitution into his home, give him full honor as a spouse. And then when she keeps going back to it, God tells him, go get her. Go get her and bring her home. Go get her and bring her home. Go get her and bring her home. And that is, that is God's role to us. And that's pretty tough. If I think back on not, not only the big things that I see the world doing or my society or maybe the trends in my family, but if I get really personal and I think about how I have honored God's devotion to me, that's not, that doesn't come out terribly flattering at all. And it and it it makes me want to be better. It makes me want to live up to it in a different way. If that makes sense. Well, some of the more specific imagery that was kind of sticking out to me as we go, I'm just going to kind of run through things, and you guys can jump in as you go. Starting right off the bat, we're introduced to this Shulamite woman, and when we look in it try to look at it as the allegory immediately we're like well who is this you know we haven't heard about this person specifically in anything we've read so far so 
you know, I think usually when we think of Solomon, the thir- first, no, not Solomon. I see, I don't even know. Do we have any specific wives of Solomon pointed out anywhere else where she was like presented as being this special? I can't think of any. No, you I know. don't think you really get a lot of references besides like the Egyptian, his first wife. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. Bathsheba obviously holds kind of a special role. But that's mom. Yeah, no, I don't think there is a lot of naming of them. And I think we would, to our earlier point, she's not a uh, chariot horse. We should be careful of actually saying this is a literal person. Because, you know, I thought of this. I went back to, there's a movie that I'm pretty sure all four of us have seen, The Princess Bride. (laughs) And this is... Mowage. Yeah. (laughs) Solomon is a model for what became the medieval pastoral love poems mm-hmm. is there's the, there's the, there's the country girl and the country boy and everything is idealized in the country, which probably means they weren't from the country. Cause if anybody's actually been on a farm, you know, it's actually a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have these, these images and you know, that's, it's a story. It's a, it's a frame for a story because the beginning of princess bride, like farm boy, You know, isn't that what she always called uh, Mm -hmm. Wesley? She never actually called him by his name. And if we look through here, it's kind of like, oh, right. Yep. Farm boy. And there's the farm girl. And she's like, oh, I'm too dark. And you I just see the the dramatic fainting, you know, wrist to the forehead and head back like, oh, they blame me for all these things. It's like, okay, we're. Okay, yeah, we'll just take it for what it is. <laughs> is she Shulamite or is she not, or is she just the beautiful farm girl um, in the in the in the generic sense? I don't know. Yeah, but so we we get introduced to her, and it makes us wonder who she is. And if we're looking at it allegorically, we can look at her as being the church. The here's the here's the thing that I was. I won't say it was a. It it was odd. It was sort of a struggle. But as being a part of the church, putting myself into her role and then think trying to think that amorous way towards Solomon, if you will, or think of it, you know, towards towards Jesus, getting a more, I don't know, more of the of the of the feminine outlook towards this and maybe that's the wrong way to 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 describe it but as a man trying to put myself into the into the shoes of this woman and the way she looks at the king um it was an interesting way to try to grasp what was going on you know like hearing karen describe the way you know she likes to see a man's shoulder when he grabs her you know those are the kind of things that if if you if you'd let it wash over you you don't have to grab it too hard, you know, but you can kind of, you kind of get that, you can kind of get the feeling of what's happening, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of just there in chapter one, even there's, it's, you, you get it laid out that there is this infatuation, that new love infatuation that you have um, when you kind of first realize that person is kind of nice, you know what I mean? Yep. And, um, uh, you know, there's talk about, she says, the king has brought me into his chambers. Well, I don't think we have to have, imagine too hard of what that means. I mean, we're definitely talking about some physical intimacy, maybe even sexual, probably sexual intimacy. You know? I don't know. I'm sure they just like play checkers or something. It's fine. <laughs> well, <laughs> you ever seen Nacho Libre? They went in to have some toast. 
<laughs> no, I haven't. That's this funny. Is, this is good toast. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about David, King David, and he wrote all these bipolar psalms that we have spent some time talking about. He, as a man, as a full-on formidable warrior, is not afraid to get down into his softer feelings mm-hmm. and write things like, you know, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. Like that is not a traditional masculine stance on any kind of thing that we usually function in here in this world. And yet he was okay with that. Like he went there, read the Psalms, like every five minutes or so, you know, and he just he was full spectrum emotion but it it but you you're absolutely correct matt that is the feeling of femininity in a relationship comes from certain things and i have often thought that here on earth trying to form a relationship with god or trying to understand god i've often thought that women have an easier time of that than men because it doesn't disrupt their their typical earthly role as much as it does disrupt a typical masculine role here and mm-hmm. now. And and I'm sure through history that has been different, but I'm just talking here and now. That's the only thing I know. And I have wondered if that is why, statistically speaking, more women go to church than men. I don't know, but... It makes I sense thought. to me. It's sort of the same thing I was just thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I think it goes to the to the part where Karen was saying, just knowing yourself. And if you look at that and you look throughout history, every great warrior kind of had maybe that muse where you show yourself as a complete person by being able to, like David, be a great warrior. But also when there was no war, it was about the women. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was still... Don't take this the wrong way, but a conquest. It's another form of being able to, as a well-rounded person, I think, and showing that maybe emotional side as well as that, you know, and look at David as, like we had said before, almost like a killing machine because that's what his role was. But I think it gives you that perspective as him being a complete person. And you can't leave out that physical and emotional element. Yeah. Uh, this, the shoe of my woman, She at one point she's asking, where can I find you? Talking about, uh, what is, I'm going to say Solomon here. He's usually labeled as the beloved, which is an interesting title too. But she's like, where can I find you? And he says, if you don't know, follow the footsteps of the flock, the followers. I saw that. I could kind of see that too as, you know, people... People looking today, looking for answers, looking for meaning, you know, if you can, there's like a dual responsibility here. People who are looking should be able to look to Christ's followers to be able to follow him, which means that we as followers should be leading to, you know, we, we should be, we should be someone who the people can recognize as a follower. You know, of course, we're talking about sheep, though, and sheep have a tendency to stray away. But um, I just thought that was interesting how it's like, well, if you don't exactly know where to follow me, just follow the people who follow me or follow 
follow the ones that follow me. Oh, see, and here I must be so cynical because I thought that that was referring to his endless amount of wives. Like, go wherever <laughs> the large group of women are and be like, is he here? <laughs> he probably is. <laughs> yep, well, cynical. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, gosh. Uh, but chapter two, there's some discussion about how they both, they just think that each other are like the, the, the most beautiful things that the other has ever seen. Um, you hear about these not, sometimes you hear about guys and men, men and women who both they're getting into their old age and like, oh, you know, she's she's as beautiful as the day I met her, you know, and then we're looking from the outside going, she's wrinkly and has a hunchback, <laughs> you know, but um, but in 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 each other's eyes, these two people are the most beautiful people that ever, ever walk the face of the earth if you will um but that's that's what i was getting at earlier with the intimacy like you're there for more than the quick glance yeah you're there for all of the details and yeah sometimes that's the line of your shoulder and sometimes that's other things and then and then sometimes that's their personality or the way that they look back at you Mm -hmm. you know absolutely absolutely Oh, there's there's talk about anti- anticipation. You know, she's at one point she's like, "Behold, he comes." She's like, she's waiting for him. She she's she knows he's coming. She's she's maybe she can't see him right now, but but she has this idea. You know, I I know he's he's on his way, and uh, that got me thinking of our waiting for waiting for Christ. And you can remember back in the day when you know a date was coming. Maybe it was prom night, or maybe um, you know I I guess. You know, maybe maybe as a as a woman, you know, you're waiting for as for, we're waiting for your date to pick you up these days. I suppose it maybe it's different. I think my my boys have both been picked up by girls these days. Um, so that's my that's my, my old fashioned get off my lawn point of view of of uh, the woman waiting for the guy to come pick her up for the date. But um, just that anticipation of getting to see them again, you know, um, when you've uh, you, you you have that that point where you're just like, I cannot, I can't wait to get back to them and think about them and see them and talk to them. I I think that that is, so over the years, I have had um, a couple of jobs that put me in situations to sort of hear people's biggest relationship failures and hear their thoughts of how they wish things went instead. And one of the main things that I've heard from married women is I miss the anticipation. Like even even if we schedule a date night and I'm looking forward to it, he's there watching me get ready. I don't get to, I, I don't, you know, how did one girl say it? This girl Fawn I used to be friends with when I, when I lived in another state. She said, I don't get to watch his pupils dilate when I open the door and he sees me after I've spent two hours getting ready. Mm. Right, so there's this, this sort of, you, you lose, you gain intimacy and mm. you lose the, the chemistry of that initial rush of attraction when you get into a marriage relationship. And it's not that one is valuable and one isn't, but it's perfectly okay to, to miss that. And yeah. you know, to, just to like for for a guy, like you don't you don't live with the girl, but you know that on Wednesday night you're going to go get her and you're going to go do this, and you can hardly wait for that to happen. And in the meantime, she is a quiver with anticipation, getting ready to make it worth your wait, right? Yeah, and that is very much a female perspective on that. Yeah, 
And that is interesting too, though, because there are there is huge value to both of those. There's that mm-hmm. value to the anticipation, and there's great value to the familiarity. Yeah, you know, having somebody who you don't really mind having see you. It's and sometimes in your lowest moments, the times when you're yeah. sick, or yeah. they can hear they can hear you in the bathroom type of thing. You know, um, and, and you don't get terribly embarrassed when you've been with them for a long time. So there, there's that, there's that too, you know, but we can all remember that, 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 that initial feeling of, of that, uh, sort of infatuation that maybe grows to something more. And, uh, it was a, it's a cool feeling and maybe that's, maybe for some people it's a little more addictive than to others and, and they seek that out, uh, and, and they miss out on the familiarity. Uh, there's there's talk we get into like chapter oh wait no I want to talk about this in uh, where she says my beloved is mine and I am his that is an interesting that's kind of a beautiful phrase my beloved yeah. is mine and I am his mm-hmm. sort of an ownership definitely claiming each other you know how many how many people in the world do we get to say is that they're mine you know um and it's not like a literal ownership thing, but it is definitely a claim that we have over the people we love that other people can't have. And well, in was... this case where she is perfectly assured that that is returned, mm-hmm. like that is absolutely mutual. And she just knows that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, then uh, see, I've got like four pages of notes. No, I'm not going to go digging into every single thing here. But, um, you know, this talk about Solomon as being the king on display. And so this is this is another spot where where uh, the allegory of, of the king as as Christ fits. Chapter four gives us a whole mess of the humorous metaphors we've talked about. Hair that's like a flock of goats, teeth that are like a flock of shorn sheep, all washed, bearing twins, none barren. Uh, I got to remember that was like a big. That was a big sign of wealth for them at the time. Your lips are a strand of scarlet. That's not quite so hard for us to make that allegory anymore. Your temples are like pomegranates. That one is sort of lost on me. But I, you know, like I said, you just got to let these things wash over you. Neck like a Tower of David. Your breasts are two fawns. Yeah, when you're reading those, you cannot, we cannot really glean the exact metaphor out of it. But you just have to understand that these were things that were very valuable to them. Lots of talk here about how how the king is, the beloved is is absolutely smitten by the Shulamite. She uh, she is like his all in all, and just cannot he cannot stand being away from her. Uh, just just loves being with her, and just loves gazing on her, and makes me it it gives us a picture of how Jesus looks to the church. He loved he absolutely loves us, and is just completely infatuated with us and. You know, we know that he does whatever he can to keep to keep us close and to and to be able to be with us. Oh, here in chapter five, she says, "I I sleep, but my heart is awake." No, yeah, that's chapter two. Now, this was interesting. I love that. It cut. So, on the one hand, yes, you know, even we can think of that sort of, you know, you're going to be in my dreams tonight, sort of thing. But it also got me thinking of the, the Laodicean church which is um, kind of spelled out to us in the book of Revelation as being, and it's sort of indicative of the church of the time we're in now where people are sort of paying attention, but they're kind of 
lackluster about about it? Um, well, it reminded me of the parable of the ten virgins. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. quick recap for those who may not be familiar with it, amongst our tens of thousands of listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, the there's there's ten virgins who have been invited to a wedding. Um, they wait. The groom is supposed to come and get them and take them to the party. They, uh, it gets very, very late. They're waiting and waiting and waiting. Eventually they all fall asleep. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's here, he's here, he's here. Get up, it's time to go. And they get up and they've all brought lamps. And, and half of them have oil for their lamps. They brought extra. And so they, they get up and they, they trim their lamps. They make sure the oil's ready to go. And they, then they leave and they go to the party with the, with the groom. They go in there in the groom's party. And then the other five don't have any oil. And they're, they're freaking out. They're like, oh, we, we have to go to the nearest merchant and we have to buy oil. And, the, and the, the implication is that the wait was so long that their lamps burned out, right? And so, of course, it's the middle of the night. Nobody's open. They can't buy oil. By the time they come back, everybody's gone. So they rush over to where the wedding is happening and they bang on the door and they say, you know, let us in. We're here. We're supposed to be with the groom. And they're like, no, everybody, everybody who's here is here and you're not. And they, they won't let them in. And the interesting thing, the way I correlate this is, you know, I slept, but my heart was awake. There, all of the, all of the girls in that story go to sleep. All of them. The wait is long. It goes on much longer and this plays into the Laodicea thing, the modern Christianity, the wait for the wait for the bridegroom to come and get them is much longer than anybody thought it was going to be. And all of them go to sleep, but some of them are sleeping with their heart awake. Mm-hmm. Right. And some mm-hmm. of them are prepared. And so when the cry comes, he's here, he's here, they can jump up and they're ready. And the others, they just, they were sleeping, but I would say that their heart was asleep as well. There's a big, big difference between those two things. There's a, there's a level of disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. He says that he he comes to the door and he knocks and you can't miss you can't miss that imagery. Yeah. You know, I stand at the door and knock, you know, and um, just waiting, waiting to be let in. And uh, and she takes her time. Which is interesting because as much as we've been reading about how how she can't wait to see him, she's looking for him, she's going all over the place trying to find him, but then he comes to the door and she's like, "Oh, I'm just I'm tired. I don't want to, you know." And that uh, she takes her time getting to the door, and then by the time she gets to the door, he's moved on, and uh, and it's a it's a sad scene. He's kind of like, well, I guess this isn't going to happen, you know, tonight. So I'm going to I'm going to move on with my with my evening. It's just um, I don't know. There's some I guess maybe you could say there's some inconveniences involved to to be able to have the closeness. And right then, for some reason, she's she's just slow to respond. I like that the, the daughters of Jerusalem, they're out there asking, you know, what makes your beloved so much greater than others? We 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 can't look into somebody else's relationship and understand the intimacy between people. I think we probably can all look at people and go, "Why are they?" Sometimes you're like, "Why are they together?" And then, but then there's there's relationships that just seem to last and last and last, and you see that it works, but we can never quite look at it and go, "Why? Why does it work?" 
you know, uh, there, there's something going on between the two of them that, that, uh, that only they have. Yep. Just that unique click between people. Mm -hmm. And even today, it's a point that I bring up a lot is people, you know, we talking about worshiping God and people be like, well, what, which God? And, you know, I'm always like, well, why would you, first of all, why would you look for another one? And second of all, there's, there's only one, but, um, but uh, there's no reason to be looking around, you know. It's like, well, because because he's the best. He's amazing. He's he's uh, absolutely fantastic. Everything is about him is wonderful. Let me see. There was some in chapter six. There was some. To me, I was seeing some allegory here of Jesus interceding for his people. Um, and verse, I got to look at. I got to look at it actually in the text here to, to remind myself what I was what I was seeing there. Because the daughters are asking, where is he? And, oh, that's right. She, she's asking, the daughters are asking, where is he? And the, the Shulamite, she says, well, he's gone home to take care of his flock. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, it's sort of like with Jesus, where all people, heck, even even sometimes we are like, okay, Jesus, where are you? Well, we know that he is in heaven, whatever that means, wherever it is that he is, but he is there interceding for us he is there taking care of us doing the things that need to happen in order for us to be cared for in order for us to be brought home or to be brought to him at some point or for him to return to us actually i should say but that's that's where that's where he is and that's what he's doing he's we we don't have him right here with us but like the shulamite we we wait and we long and we 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 we, we desire it more than anything and He's there. He's thinking about us, and he's uh, he's uh, taking care of us. Uh, and then it goes into talk about the beloved and his utter infatuation for her. He talks about how he's just overcome by her gaze in verse five. Um, you know the fact, just the fact that he's looked that she's looking at him. Uh, he finds overwhelming. I think if I remember right, it talked about how it was. Uh, how did it put it? Uh, yeah, he's overcome overcome by her gaze we can think of the times when you know you happen to notice that glance that somebody was giving you and you've been giving them the glance too you know and neither one of you wants to necessarily <laughs> fess up to it but you're just like oh they're looking at me you know and and he's uh he's just utterly infatuated with, with the fact that he's that she's looking to him um there's some talk about in 11 and 12 in chapter 6 that maybe there was some there were some distractions that were pulling the Shulamite away that had to be be over overcome. And then in verse thirteen, uh, the 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 beloved he says, "Return, return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon you." That desire from him for him to have her come to him, get away from the distractions, set the distractions aside, and come back. There's there's so much talk about the looks of desire uh, with each other. Chapter seven specifically came across to me as kind of seeming very physical in its nature, very physical desires and uh, just, just the, the, the imagery there. And yeah, yeah, it's the kind of thing I'm not, there's no way I'm going to be able to describe it. You have to read it for yourself and let it wash over you. But it's, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll use the word kind of arousing. Uh, it, it was as I was reading it, I just felt it stirring something inside, mm-hmm. and the 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 desire between the two of them, and it it 
it was sort of quick. I could say it was sort of quickening my my pulse. I could feel like it's like I could feel something inside of me stirring there. Yeah, and, yep. and uh, yeah, you, you can, I can't describe it. You have to you have to read it for yourself and just kind of let it wash over you. Matt's new hobby is reading poetry out loud to his wife. Mm, no, probably not. <laughs> probably not. I'm not. I don't know if she would sit still for it. <laughs> she might surprise me. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, chapter eight. There was a t- there was a verse there that was just sort of. Um, uh, it, it sounds it sounds odd to our ears. Oh, that you were like my brother. She's talking. She's she's talking about this guy she loves, and oh, that you were like my brother. And that's another one of those. I think you had to be in the time period to really let that one get get to you. But I think what it's talking about is a. Uh, it's talking about that familiarity. Um, no, she says she says um, what she says what it is. Yeah. If only you were like my brother who was nursed at my mother's breast. Then if I found you outside, I could kiss you and no one would despise me. Mm-hmm. Like she wants to be free to just rush up to him and express closeness. And yeah. she she can't because of society's, you know, constraints at that time. Yeah. Yeah. The freedom of it. The freedom mm-hmm. of being able to to express some some uh, some love towards him. Uh, verse six, set me as a seal upon your heart. Boy, that idea of a seal. A seal is an expression that definitely of ownership. It's definitely of, um, yeah, I guess ownership is, is sort of the right no. way to put it. No, it's not ownership. No, no you're it's right. Not, it's yeah. not ownership. It's, it's, it is. Sort of belonging, though. It's, it's dedication. Mm-hmm. It is self-dedication because of love. So what she says is. Um, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. And then down below in verse 7, she says, Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Like, it's, it is devotion. It is a self-sealing. It's like, no, that's, that's my person. Like, mm-hmm. so that, that's what the seal is. Yeah. Like his his heart, she's she's saying, I want your feelings for me to seal your heart so that just you and I have this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sort of a claim. Mm-hmm. Sort of, but uh, but it's, um, it's the same thing that we read previous is he is mine and I'm his. Yeah. That's that bond. It's it's just a d- different ways to put it. But it's still that same intimacy that that it's just those two. I have eyes only for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Well, so as you can see, I mean, we've kind of explored both sides of this and it's, um, you know, we actually, I think we did a pretty good job of talking about uh, just sort of the emotional side of this. Cause that's really what this book is. It's so much of an emotional study and, and of relationship and, uh, emotional love and physical love and desire. I don't know what other words can I use to describe it, but the main thing I got out of it was just that intimacy and that intimacy incorporates all of those aspects. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- these are aspects of us, so I guess, from the faith side of things to keep in mind when we're thinking of our relationship with Christ, how we're going to interact with him 
what he really desires from us, if we can put it into that sort of sort of a romantic uh, point of view and that that desire that we remember having having at those different times of our life and understanding that that's the kind of the way God looks at us. He kind of looks at us as with this longing and this desire to be close to us and to know us and have us know him so intimately that it's indescribable, really. You know, I don't really, I don't really know how else to, how else to put that. But that, uh, that in a nutshell, I mean, that's kind of, I guess, our take on the Song of Solomon. Unless you guys have some other thoughts to throw in there, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know what more we could. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how how much deeper we could possibly go, with, with because of because it's such an emotional and such a personal thought process when you're yeah. when you're considering these things. Yeah. So I think that will about wrap up our discussion for this week. I definitely encourage our listeners to go through and read that. It's not very long. It's eight chapters, but uh, it's it's not a it's not a super deep study. And when you read it, don't don't try too hard to look into the allegory. Just let it sweep over you and 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 get the feeling of the emotion. You don't have to understand what it means that her teeth are like sheep. <laughs> And uh, and just in just enjoy it, and uh, after you read it, then then ponder on it and think about it, how how that relates to your relationship uh, with our Creator, with God, with Jesus. Next week we will get kind of back into the narrative of the life of Solomon now, where we've kind of seen him rise and get to uh, the heights of his of his reign, and then things are going to kind of start changing for his story now. So next week we're going to get into 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and 1 Kings chapters 10 through 14. And we will we will look into those continuing days of Solomon. Not Solomon. Yes, Solomon. <laughs> I've getting so confused with who we're talking about anymore. Solomon while you're waiting for that, you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can look for us on Facebook. Be sure to share the podcast with your friends and family and relatives and the deepest love of your life <laughs> so that they can also share in this relationship with Jesus and have their own. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.